I think that this crisis highlights more than anything how important it is to get healthcare to every single American. We wish we could stay open longer and whatnot, and it's just not sustainable without funding from the province. In the outreach spots that we do have, there have been so few people outside that it's made it almost impossible to find people and connect. Small community grassroots nonprofit with a small budget, a worldwide shortage on ways to protect yourself and your participants. There's not a whole lot you can really do. It always seems like, okay, well, you know, there's a problem in Toronto and there's a problem in Vancouver, but anywhere else, it's, it's just not that bad. But when we know it's, you know, one death is too many. This is really a time when we need to be going out and finding our clients. There is no way that we'll be prepared for something like this in the future unless we're really taking the effort to, to take care of the health of every single person in this country. But it's tricky when you run a program that prides itself on extreme anonymity and confidentiality. And there's folks who have power to do that and they're making choices. And the choice is not to care about the health and the lives of our participants, that's for sure. Pretty much everyone on the planet is being impacted by COVID-19 right now. Harm reduction services like syringe access programs or supervised consumption sites are no exception. But for some people, these services are not just their lifeline. They're the only health care they receive, period. And when hospitals and doctor's offices are already stretched thin, it can lead to a lot of potentially dangerous situations. I'm Troy Farah, and you're listening to Narcotica. We're introducing a new mini-series called Hot Spots, where we're going to call up people in harm reduction across the country and ask them how coronavirus has impacted their services and the people they help. This will consist of three shorter segments, which equal a full episode. First up, we have a segment from me talking to Toy at Shot in the Dark in Phoenix about getting creative with syringe access during the pandemic. Then, Philly's Christopher Moraff talks to Matthew Bond in Nova Scotia about services offered in Canada and the local drug trade there and how that's all been impacted. I round out the hour with Sarah Ziegenhorn, the executive director of the Iowa Harm Reduction Coalition, about what happens when services suddenly ghost their clients. During Sarah's interview, there was a bird singing in the background, which is just a reminder that you can't control everything and sometimes nature has its way with you. We hope you like hearing from some of the people in harm reduction about how COVID-19 is changing things up. We'll have more of the regular single-source episodes soon. Our goal at Narcotica is to check in with folks in all 50 states, including Canada and Mexico. But that's pretty ambitious, so for now we're just trying a few states at a time. In a week or so, we'll have reports from Massachusetts, North Carolina, and Illinois, and Zach will have a segment as well. If you want to suggest someone to talk to, contact us on Twitter or Facebook because our email is down. One thing we want to bring up, Narcotica is an ad-free program. No one needs to be sold a mattress while they're trying to get some harm reduction. So we rely on listener donations to keep afloat. There's so much going on right now and so many good places to take your money. Maps, Planned Parenthood, Doctors Without Borders, the Drug Policy Alliance, the Decriminalized Nature Movement, or your local harm reduction clinic, and so much more. If you have anything left, feel open to join our Patreon subscribers. They're at patreon.com slash narcotica. We are so grateful for them making this show possible. We debuted almost exactly two years ago and never expected this much support been really humbling and we're just so grateful for the opportunity to be able to bring people accurate drug reporting because there's so few of that and now here's narcotica hotspots one through three thanks for listening
With us on the show today is Toy, a community organizer and second-generation immigrant born and raised in Phoenix. Toy has shared his passion for problem-solving and developing leadership through collaboration discussion over the last decade, seeking to create a positive impact for his neighbors. In the interest of full disclosure, I should mention that Toy and I used to volunteer together for Shot in the Dark in Phoenix, a syringe access program that was sort of not official. But that was several years ago. I'm no longer involved with Shot in the Dark, but they still do excellent work providing a lifeline to people who need clean syringes, condoms, cookers, cottons, that kind of thing. Toy, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Troy. I'm so excited to be on with you. Uh, Like you said, it's been a minute, so I'm glad to chat. Uh, So can you describe a little bit of what harm reduction services Shot in the Dark offers? So at Shot in the Dark, our main focus is syringe services, of course, but we also, you know, do safer sex. We do uh, some small sex worker outreach. We also really want to focus on being sort of navigators for our participants to help them sort of get through different systems and help them sort of uh, get the resources that they need that are available in the community, but they might not have the knowledge or the experience to navigate themselves. And you also offer Narcan, right? That's true. Yeah. Naloxone distribution is a a big part of our program as well. And how have your services been impacted by COVID-19? Well, you know, um, that's, you know, in a lot of ways, that's like a really big, expansive discussion, because I think that like, for our participants, there's a lot of subtle effects that have like knock on follow on sort of effects that maybe we don't necessarily see now, but we're going to see later. But in terms of, you know, the services on the providing side, You know, we really wanted to manage really the uncertainty that we feel is kind of like the the core issue that everybody's kind of dealing with right now. So, you know, what we wanted to do was, you know, get the word out about what was going on out to our participants um, and try to act as that trusted source of information so that we could really focus on bringing the conversation that was being held at these really high public health levels into a really digestible, easy, impactful format for our participants who may not be following the news every day or may not, you know, may, you know, considering the political climate in this country and the way that discussion of this outbreak has become an issue that's like so fraught with these accusations of like falsehood and lies to really try and provide like a clear explanation of what's going on to our participants and fall back on our relationship of trust that we have with them. We really wanted to shift to that for like a short time just to really make sure that we were getting that message out to our community and that they were receiving it from somebody that they trusted. Um, so that was like a, a, you know, an initial stage that we really wanted to flip to. Um, and during that time, we were, you know, doing that while we were also sort of continuing our normal services, which uh, in our case is to sort of operate like mobile outreach drop in events almost where we'll go to a parking lot or a park or something like that and set up maybe like a table and folks can drop by and pick up whatever supplies they need and chat with us and get connected to resources and things. Um, but what we realize is that, you know, in Phoenix, because of the really um, drawn out urban sprawl that the city has gone through, um, a lot of our participants, when they're going to our mobile sites, even though our sites are located all across the valley, are traveling um, in carpools, they're traveling on the bus, um, they're, you know, taking long walks and uh, exposing themselves to crowds and other folks as they're coming by. So we really recognized that not only was like people congregating at our mobile outreach sites, uh, a potential vector for transmission, but also like the 
transportation that folks had to take to get to us was also a potential opportunity where they were going to come into contact with somebody who was possibly going to pass along the infection. So, you know, going back to that idea of kind of just clearing out as much uncertainty as possible, what we really wanted to do when we decided to, you know, really make some, some serious changes to the way that we were operating was to, instead of, you know, creating a situation where we were having like changing policies week to week and adding to this uncertainty and dealing with, um, you know, the social distancing guidelines without um, a lot of the, the funding and the support from, from governmental agencies that we were really hope for. Um, we decided to instead basically, you know, get the word out that due to the outbreak, we were going to take a little bit of a break from being out there in the community and our mobile outreach sites, but really emphasize to our folks to um, come by and stop by on one of those last few weeks um, where they would be able to get uh, like a month's worth of supplies. So normally we operate on a week by week supply basis with our with our participants and we ask them to come out every week because we like to have that frequent contact and that opportunity to have a face-to-face -face interaction. But given the outbreak, we, you know, realigned our priorities a little bit and said, hey, look, we're going to give you a whole month of stuff so you don't have to leave the house and come out here and risk sitting next to somebody on the bus that's going to cough all over you. Um, especially knowing that a lot of our participants might be older, might have a pre-existing health condition, knowing that like COVID-19 being a respiratory illness is going to increase people's chance for overdose and, and risk of those sorts of negative effects. Um, we really, 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 really wanted to as much as possible, make it easy for our participants to not expose themselves to infection. So that was kind of our first step in doing that. And like I say, we really hope that for our participants that took a lot of uh, uncertainty out of the situation by kind of giving them this, okay, you've got a month's worth of supplies. You don't have to go out. You don't have to, to, to get into these situations that maybe wouldn't be the safest for you. Um, so that was kind of the first way that we wanted to just conquer that uncertainty. Um, moving forward, kind of what we're looking to do, because, you know, in shutting down our mobile outreach program, we realized we had almost kind of an opportunity on our hands to take a, a reflection on, you know, the way that we designed our programs, especially considering like, how can we implement these social distancing guidelines into the way that we operate our programs. We really wanted to just, you know, take the opportunity to do a lot of revision that we've been spending years saying we wanted to do but it's always very difficult to change up operations when you're in the middle of doing them week to week. So it's been a really amazing effort from the volunteers down at, at Shot in the Dark, um, some community collaborators to work with us to build and roll out. Um, currently, we're in the pilot stage of a program for a new look um, program that's mostly going to be based around deliveries and uh, hopefully some uh, mail distribution of syringes and, and harm reduction supplies. And hopefully that's going to enable us to let folks stay at home during the duration of this outbreak. Um, but also for us to find like inventive ways to be in touch with people, um, you know, leveraging these digital tools, leveraging, you know, the ability to have a, a closer relationship with folks. So one thing that we're really looking to do instead of relying on those in-person interactions week to week. To, to hook up specific participants with specific volunteers and kind of create like a case management situation where folks are almost like they have a friend that they can reach out to as like a navigator at Shot in the Dark and say, hey, I know you. I have a relationship with you. I'm comfortable with you. I can talk with you really frankly about what's going on. 
And, you know, we can figure out what is the best way for me to receive supplies. Should I visit somebody? Should somebody visit me? Should we do mail? Can I drop them off on your patio and you can come and get them after I leave? You know, and have that flexibility to work everything out to make it safer for our participants and our volunteers and everybody uh, to reduce the risk of spreading from person to person in all facets. So that's, like I said, in a pilot process, you know, the, the last details are being hammered out before we really roll it out and, and open it up to everybody to who was enrolled in our old programs to get enrolled in the new look programming. But um, yeah, it's just, it's been an amazing outpouring, not only of, you know, that effort from our volunteers and collaboration from our community, but also of understanding from our participants who were really, really, really generous and patient and saying like, look, you know, we appreciate you guys underlining the gravity of this situation for us. We understand like what needs to happen for everybody in this situation. So we're willing to like, you know, roll with the punches and stick with you guys and see when you come out the other side. And we've had such an amazing um, reaction to our new look programming and it's just been really fabulous. So it's almost something that like, it's like the silver lining in this for a lot of things for me is just seeing the way that the community has reacted, including our participants, including our volunteers, including people who've never been involved in harm reduction or shot in the dark before. And it's been really amazing. Wow. That's really interesting, especially the the whole kind of case, uh, case management model. That's, seems like a really good way to like solve this problem. Obviously the most important thing about your participants, the whole reason shot in the dark exists is to help people get health care and putting their health first. And so uh, that's really interesting. Have you noticed like, or heard uh, uh, an uptick in overdoses or overdose reversals? Has that, cause I'm really concerned about people having to shelter in place alone. And that means they're using alone. And then there's not someone there to revive them. Is that something that you're seeing? That's not something that we've been seeing or hearing a whole lot of reports about, but I think that that's kind of one of those kind of medical uncertainty of a lot of things that are going on right now. Um, you know, if somebody passes away alone in their house, it's going to be really hard to tell if they died of pneumonia or of an overdose because those have like very similar kind of, you know, it's, it's a, it's a lack of oxygen at the end of the day, you know? Right. So I can't say that I've heard anything personally. I know that I'm kind of like, like you, I'm waiting on tensor hooks almost to see like the stats that come out of this, but I haven't heard any personal reports of anything like that. No. That's good. I mean, we did really want to, like I said, get that information out to folks. That's like, look, this disease affects your breathing. Breathing is what keeps you from dying of an overdose. Have your Narcan. Have somebody that, even if they're, you're not there with you personally, say, hey, call me in 15 minutes. Hey, call me in half an hour. Set up, um, you know, there's these really great apps. There's um, like a, 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 an overdose timer, it's called, where it like, it, it'll like send you a notification every like 15 minutes and you have to hit the button. Otherwise, it'll like automatically send a call to somebody. Um, there are like websites. There's like a, I, I can't remember what, I think it's like the Never Use Alone hotline where you can call on the phone and have somebody sit with you on the phone while you, while you like, you know, administer your drugs to yourself and then they'll check in with you. So we wanted to get those like alternate options out to folks because we were really worried about that. So we, we hope that that awareness did like make an impact for folks and that they were thinking about that going slower, you know, titrating their doses a little bit more carefully. So hopefully that had an impact. Definitely. Yes. I think it's great that you're looking at the silver lining in this and how this can kind of help the team kind of take a step back and like really examine 
how you can help people more and what you could be doing differently. You know, Shot in the Dark is not technically legal. Has there been any movement on that? I mean, last year, or maybe it was the year before even, I heard that there was there was a bill that was passed and it did not get very far in the legislature. Um, any changes on that? So I'm not an expert in that stuff, but I think that this is the third year that that bill has gone to the Arizona legislature. What I heard from a lot of advocates and from our, our, our collaborators in the community was that they had a really good shot this year. Um, but due to the outbreak, the Arizona legislature basically passed an emergency budget and went home. So there wasn't really any like legislative sessions this year aside from the budget process, I think. That's a real shame. Yeah, it's it's really unfortunate. Some folks are hoping that, you know, later on in the year, they'll be able to call an emergency session and kind of catch up the work that they didn't do during the normal session. But I mean, that's just one of those things that um, even if they did, honestly, knowing that it's 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 uh, failed twice in the past two years, I can't imagine it's going to be very high on their priority list. But again, I'm not I'm not I'm not really the person to talk to on that. I just know that. Yeah, we're still in that kind of you know, like you say, it's, 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 it's like a gray area almost. So we live in that space. We make the best use that we can out of that space. Hopefully things will change, but you have to deal with the reality on the ground. Yeah. Well, that's pretty much all my questions. Is there anything else that you want to talk about how this pandemic has changed the way harm reduction works in your community? You know, I think, I think if anything, it really just highlights the, the problems with the lack of, of us being legal and having that support. You know we we made a lot of decisions because we were again kind of going back to what i said you have to you have to deal with the reality on the ground and when you're a small community grassroots nonprofit with a small budget um and no governmental support and there's a wor- a worldwide sor- shortage on ppe and masks and ways to protect yourself and your participants there's not a whole lot you can really do in that moment and you know it's it shouldn't be up to, you know, a group of 20 volunteers who have day jobs and families and stuff to take care of to be responsible for, for fixing this issue that the state has repeatedly made it clear that they're not interested in taking any progress on and that they're fine with leaving our participants to, to suffer these really just negative health outcomes, including permanent disability and death, you know, and, and, I think that this crisis highlights more than anything how important it is to get healthcare and the health services that folks need for their lifestyle, no matter what that lifestyle is, to every single American. Because there, there's no way that we'll be prepared for something like this in the future unless we're really taking the effort to, to, to take care of the health of every single person in this country. You're asking for trouble by basically saying to a whole section of the population, I don't like what you do, so I'm not going to help take care of you. You're really putting yourself at risk and you're putting the rest of the community at risk. And, you know, like I say, you know, there, there's so much more that could have been done if the, if the right people were, were trying to do the right things. Um, and there's folks who have power to do that and they're making choices. And the choice is not to care about the health and the lives of our participants. That's for sure. Yeah. I, first of all, I absolutely agree with everything you just said. And I just really want to emphasize to people that, you know, right now, on a global level, we're in crisis, but so many of our communities were already in crisis long before this even happened. And I am optimistic, maybe naively so, 
But I really do want to see some outcome from all of this that's ultimately positive. And I feel like finally enough people are paying attention to the needs of what we need for this. Just to use an example, like HIV spread from syringes being shared or something like that. We think of that as just being something in this community of people who use uh, syringes. But if that, that community is not separate from us. You know, an HIV outbreak in a community of drug users is an HIV outbreak in the entire community. Like It puts everybody at risk. I, I definitely hope that this whole crisis, the coronavirus pandemic, is going to make it so that people invest more in public health and especially in harm reduction for people who are, you know, on some of the the lowest tiers of our society. So I, I am trying to be optimistic and see that, you know, that we're going to get through this. Um, our The harm reduction community really knows how to handle crisis already. And that hopefully that can translate to some longer lasting positive change. Definitely. 100%. All right. Well, that's it. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Of course. Thank you for having me. It's been really great to talk with you and have an opportunity to share what's going on here at Phoenix because uh, a lot more people need to know. Yeah. All right. We'll talk to you soon. Sounds good, man. Thank you. Yeah. So my, my name's Matthew Bond. I'm uh, the program coordinator with the Canadian Association of People Who Use Drugs. Actually, I was on the board for a while, and I just recently stepped in as the program coordinator role, and we're based out of Dartmouth, Nova Scotia. And how how long has that been an organization? Kaput has been around since 2011, I believe. More or less, there's, you know, we have representation from almost every province, and we got to hefty little grant to do uh, some engagement with the government so they you know will hear our voice um, so that's like one part of the grant and then we also review documents having a pan-canadian approach to things so if it's got anything to do with drug policy harm reduction safe supply you know opioid agonist therapy really anything you think of we'll reach out to an organization ask them if we can review their documents we give them like uh, a full kind of review from each province. And that's just kind of two, two of the things that came to my mind, but, you know, especially yeah. in the time of COVID. Are you doing outreach? Do you distribute in lockdown? Do you do work, do you work like that um, on, the, on, the, on the street level? Or how does that, how does that work out? There, or there, there are different organizations that do that. Oh yeah, so I'm more I'm more or less probably involved with every harm reduction organization. I would say we got the Halifax Area Network of Drug Using People, and that's kind of like a little mini kaput. Do a lot of advocacy and presentations, and you know, research focus groups. We got a grant through Hand Up to do prison outreach. It's called PALS Peers Assisting and Lending Support, and. We're focusing on provincial institutions um, because there, we, we saw a huge gap, right? Like people get out of provincial jail with a bus ticket and pretty much like good luck. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, we know the rates of overdose for, for someone getting out of jail are very high. They don't even start people on methadone in provincial jails, which is insane. Just started Suboxone here, and that's not even really working for a lot of people. But I mean, you're in jail, you know, you don't really have much of a choice. So, I guess eventually it, it does. But unless you're on a program already, when you, when you go into jail, you're not you're not dosed. And if you go to state, which is you know you're like so we have the county level, the state level, and then federal level. If you go to the state level, then you're just like weaned very quickly off. You know, it's got to be a brutal experience. I couldn't imagine that. Like, I, you know, I've seen so many people too, like 
it's a prime opportunity to treat somebody for opioid use disorder. Like, I can't believe they don't do it. it it's you mentioned um, the provincial level. Like, does Canada have like, federal drug laws the way we do here in the United States, or does every province have it differently? Yeah, so so drugs are federal. They're under the Controlled Drugs and Substance Act. It's interesting because they got the authority to exempt, you know, these sites so you can use legally in a safe consumption site or an overdose prevention site. Like those are exemptions that really are like one year or two years or 30 days. So to change the legislation, something else, right? Like that would be uh, it would take a long time, but you can almost provide ways of legalization through these models of safe supply that we were talking about earlier, right? Like, but we have tons of people in federal jails right now in there for crimes uh, are related to substances one way or another. Um, and, you know, with COVID going on, like they're being very hesitant and letting federal, like they've let a lot of people out of provincial jails, but not, not federally, like, you know, they're very hesitant. And it's, Really, you look at the stats, and it's mainly drug crimes, right? Like it's insane. But uh, so, yeah, we we got our exemption granted last uh, July third. Never thought in a million years we'd get it. We more or less fundraised by selling T-shirts and a GoFundMe and private donations enough to provide kind of a, a proof of concept that we had a budget, we had a need, we had about sixty people die a year in Nova Scotia from overdose deaths and I was gonna say that sounds tiny, but I'm sure it, it does, but it, it's not. And, and the you know, like if you look compared to kind of like the population sizes everywhere, right? It's so funny because like, you know, we our provincial government would not support us. We were the first site to ever get a exemption without provincial support. But that means we got no money from the province um so we ha we had enough to open for one year three hours a day so we're open from monday to sunday 9 a.m to 12 p.m not because we wish we could stay open longer and, and whatnot and it's just not sustainable without funding from the province it's t it, it, it always seems like okay well you know there's a problem in toronto and there's a problem in vancouver but anywhere else it's it's just not that bad. But when we know it's, you know, one death is too many. So um, what's it, what is the situation on the ground like where, where you are in, in the, on the Far East? Um, uh, is this mostly injection fentanyl use or is it pill abuse, synthetics? I mean, Canada used to be the MDMA capital of the world, you know. Um, you had the best labs there were up there. <laughs> There's a lot, you know, so I'm, a, you know, I love fentanyl. That was kind of my thing for a long time. It started with uh, prescription fentanyl, so fentanyl patches and whatnot. That was around 2012. And then I slowly started to see the transition uh, of kind of, you know, the, the doctors getting harder on prescribing. They weren't prescribing as many opioids. The Oxycontins got, uh, you know, diverted to Oxyneos. Uh, and then, you know, you've seen the illicit fentanyl come in. It was originally kind of pressed um, oxy-80s. We used to call mm -hmm. them the shady 80s because they didn't look like, <laughs> like there were some good ones that were like, they really looked like the oxy-80s, but we knew they weren't. But then they had the shady 80s and they were like light blue. And we thought they were like, the bluer they were, the better they were. Like, that's what we thought, right? Like, And uh, there's so many myths that uh, like, just pick up on the street. <laughs> 
I mean, you guys got slammed really, really early. I mean, before us, I think. And I actually wrote an article for the Daily Beast that was like, you know, hey, Trump, like, you know, you're watching the wrong border. And a lot of people called me a drug warrior because of it. But it was just pointing out that, like, you know, it's racism that you're looking south because we have like 5,000 miles of largely unpatrolled border where people are just like, and and it's I think it started in Alberta. There was a, there was a gang of like you know lacrosse kids from like I don't know high school that were moving uh, press pills one way and bringing back meth and coke the other way. It was like yeah. two way, and um, that's when I sort of realized like how big Canada was for for a long time. I mean, even during our our alcohol prohibition, we relied on you. Prohibition has obviously never worked out very well here. You know, that's a good question. And, and I'm lucky on the East Coast, we haven't been hit like, you know, Vancouver or Toronto. But I, just to back to your point about the borders, I find that very interesting because it's so true, right? Like, and that's kind of like the privilege of being a white Canadian, I guess, right? Like they're going back and forth. And you, like you said, you nailed it. They, they don't really look at those borders uh, in a sense of, going into the states right i think they more say think that it's going up into canada mm-hmm. and, and and you know I, I don't know too much about it but i know that those border cities are packed right you know you look at windsor ontario and toronto um and, and you know it's a big conduit to the windsor ontario uh, uh whatever that court is that the one by detroit yeah exactly. yeah yeah so, so how has this this pandemic? I don't know what the pandemic's been like in Halifax, but how has it generally in, in Canada changed, like either the political will to go through with things like overdose prevention sites or 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 the work on the ground? Yeah, because we have exemptions, right? So. Health Canada has issued two exemptions, one to pharmacists allowing them to renew, refill, and transfer prescriptions. So more or less, if you know, you're a drug user and you're on methadone, you can't see your doctor, but you've already been on it, you can go to your pharmacist and they can refill it for you, which is huge and provides a real kind of you know, person-first kind of approach to dealing with OAT. A lot of people got carries, not everybody does. But, you know, I think that a lot of doctors are looking at the way things are done differently. And also there with the whole overdose prevention sites and safe consumption sites, the federal government actually allowed the each provincial ministry to exempt um, each province. So they have the power now before you had to go to the feds. Now you can go to your province and say, look, you know, this is a COVID isolation uh, unit and we know a bunch of people are using we're going to set up a site and make it safe and they can say yes or no places where you don't have sites it's you know and, and you don't have provincial support doesn't really do that much for them but at least it's it sets some precedent that it's there um and you know they can do it and, and that's good until september 30th and who knows it could get extended you know so that's you know one kind of response you know and it we have one of our homeless shelters that's moved into the Marriott, a hotel. They have like a whole floor. Uh, that's, that's funny. They did, I think it was the Marriott they were using down here too. But they're only doing it here with people that are actually tested and come up positive, basically. So um, we still have a pretty large transient population in a very, very small section because like police activity 
ironically, the, the reformist DA, Larry Krasner, who, who is not charging for a lot of these drug crimes, like the police have sort of like used alternate means of kind of fucking with people. And it's like moving them off of the little blocks, pushing them onto the main thoroughfares where they're in, injecting in public. And, and um, it's just been like sort of a, 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 a government that's not communicating with each other very well, you know. Like, um, okay. Department of Health doesn't know what you know the mayor's office is going to say, and then, and then you've got police that are sort of district controlled. You know, I mean, like, there's only so much that the chief of police here can do. I mean, you know, it's really like a command level at the district level that the policy is made. You know, it seems like it's probably a more uh, strategic approach than here in Canada, and that's probably due to like you know state legislation and all that bureaucratic kind of stuff. Oh, it's machine politics. Like, like yeah. we're like one of the oldest machine. Yeah, Chicago. You know, some of these old cities they're still run by the council. What used to be ward leaders. You know, you can't get a thing done without their support. You know, but all right. Thanks for thanks for the call. It was good talking to you, man. Yes, you too, man. I appreciate it. With us today is Sarah Ziegenhorn, the executive director and founder of the Iowa Harm Reduction Coalition in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Founded in 2016, the HRRC offers healthcare and social services, advocacy and community organizing, and training and education for people who use drugs. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about what HRRC does, what kind of services you offer, and, and how you help people. Sure. So oftentimes I will tell people that IHRC is really your bread and butter harm reduction organization. We use a drug user health framework that is modeled very closely off of the service delivery models and the organizational frameworks of our peers all around the country. And so our work uh, looks very much like the work of probably the harm reduction organization nearest to you if you happen to live in a state that does have an organization that does this type of work. Our work is divided into three different domains. I like to think of them as buckets. And so in one bucket, we do policy work. We write and develop public policy that we think will improve the lives of people who use drugs. Uh, In our second bucket, number two, we provide training and education. So a lot of fairly boring nonprofit type of work like technical assistance, um, training service providers around our state to administer naloxone or at least know how to administer it should they witness an overdose. Um, And then finally, the thing that we are most known for and really going back to what I said is sort of the bread and butter of what we do and of what many harm reduction orgs do um, is that we operate a program that focuses primarily on infectious disease and overdose prevention, uh, specifically offering people naloxone, overdose uh, prevention, counseling, and education training to help people create plans and opportunities for um, what they will do and how things will happen if they are to witness an overdose or experience one themselves. And then in that same vein, work with people pretty closely to offer patient navigation services that help people to connect with rapid access to uh, medication-assisted treatment or MAP, so things like buprenorphine or suboxone. So yeah, so that's sort of our program in a nutshell. So how have things been changed? Uh, How have your services been impacted by COVID-19? COVID-19 has impacted 
the services that we provide in a couple of different ways, but it seems to have ebbed and flowed quite a bit. Um, and things change on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis. And it seems like with how people are responding to the pandemic. Probably the biggest concern that we have right now is the way that it has changed the mail speed. And we've had no ability to anticipate how long it will take us to get new shipments of supplies. So where we typically have an idea um, of how long things might take, right now we've been out of a number of critical supplies for about a week. um, And that's something that's never happened to us before. Um, So sort of panicked with trying to figure out how to get this one essential supply that's really basic to everything that we do. Immediately in March, we made a number of quick changes to make sure that it would be um, relatively safe for participants and our staff and volunteers to continue engaging in the service. And probably the most uh, bizarre change is that we no longer are able to allow people to come and hang out and spend time in our drop-in center. Uh, We operate our office out of a really sweet little brick cottage in Cedar Rapids. Cedar Rapids is Iowa's second largest city, and our office is based in um, one of the oldest buildings in the city. It was built in the 1840s, and so it has this really lovely downstairs with high ceilings and a chandelier, and it looks like like a house where someone um, might feel very comfortable. It has a fireplace and huge floor-to-ceiling windows, um, and so it's often times a space where our participants will pop in at some point in the day, um, get some coffee, sit down, watch TV for a little while, and hang out with our staff. Um, And that transition has been really abrupt and I think uncomfortable for a, a number of folks that utilize our program. So much to the point so that some participants will try to sneak in and run past the signage that says don't go upstairs and sprint through our doors just so that they can try to get through without being noticed quickly enough that they can come upstairs into the building and hang out with whoever they want to hang out with. That's really interesting. Uh, It sounds really lovely there. And that's funny that they are just like... You know, I, I know that harm reduction clinics, places like yours, like really build like community and people just like, and, and, and that's what we are really craving so much right now with all this isolation. Can we talk about this story you posted on Twitter about an underground syringe exchange that, that ghosted their clients and abruptly shut down without announcing their closure? What happened there? Sure. So this is a story that I have heard secondhand and I have not, uh, unfortunately, I've not been able to speak with anybody who was directly involved in the leadership of the program. So spoke just with one of their, their main volunteers and with one of their clients as well. I did reach out to them, to the program's uh, founders and their leadership, and ask um, if they'd like to set up a time to talk with me about a plan of action so that their clients could get services and after they had disappeared and sort of dropped off the face of the earth, that there might be an opportunity to sort of salvage some of the relationships they had built. So essentially what had happened was in August of 2018, uh, sometime around there, maybe a little bit before, there was a training that happened in their town where they learned some skills, and I was the trainer, um, and the skills they learned were about 
naloxone administration and safe injection, and it was meant to be sort of a startup conversation to try to help organize all the different groups in this community who were really, really excited about the idea of starting a harm reduction organization and of doing syringe exchange, but independently didn't know enough people to help get something like that off the ground. Um, and so my thought was, aha, all of these people have come to me and told me that this is their desire. I'm going to go and put them all in one room and they can get to know each other over time and see what they can build. But the group kind of that took off, took off very quickly and not necessarily while pursuing a lot of partnership with the people in the community that had a lot of intense experiences related to substance use or um, overdose and uh, the death of loved ones. Um, and so there was sort of a faction of community members who worked in the methadone clinic as a nursing staff, had lost children to overdose, were people that practiced moderation in their own lives with their own substance use, um, and were seen really as the community experts. But so this sort of separate group of um, individuals who were faculty from the, uh, one of the local colleges decided that they would kind of go gangbusters and get this program off the ground themselves. And so what I think they did not realize was, one, just how how hard it is to run a harm reduction program, especially in a red state, especially in a state where it's illegal, and especially in a state where there is no funding that's going to be made available to you. Um, and it puts you really only at the mercy of a couple of private funders working at the national level. The resources were really limited and sort of, in some ways, maybe they were doomed from the start um, in a lot of ways without sort of really gra- being able to grasp the, the reality of what they were heading into. Um, and that's, you know, that's, that's unfortunate because a lot of people want to do good things in the world. Um, and syringe exchange is not rocket science, you know. Um, it's not the same thing as going out and practicing medicine or deciding you're going to build a rocket to literally go into outer space. Um, So like it would make sense that reasonable, intelligent people would think I can go ahead and start this and get it going. Um, But there's so much that is complicated and that is challenging. And I think without mentorship in the community and without connections to other harm reductionists, um, people can get really lost and, really confused and really in over their heads pretty deep. And I think that's one reason why people in harm reduction um, talk about their colleagues and their mentors and the people they work with as their family um, and as people that make up some of the closest relationships in their lives is because it's an incredibly difficult field to work in. And so people hold each other really tight and try to keep each other close and supported so that they can learn from one another. And so unfortunately for this group, that wasn't the type of um, relationship that they were looking for with other people in the field. Um, And so sort of flash forward, I guess, now about a year and a half later, and they had been, they had set up a small program. So um, hard to say how large the program really was, but they were giving out syringes, giving out naloxone, supposedly, although it sounds like they did not ever establish their own source of either, but um, they were sort of sending their volunteers to our program and um, picking up supplies when they could find them through our through our supply, um, sort of discreetly. And um, and so yeah. So what I was I think 
primarily concerned about was that in this particular moment, the news that had come out of this community from their volunteers, clients in their program, and then some other social service uh, providers that work with um, people that use drugs, people at risk of HIV and hepatitis C, um, had been reporting that the program closed down. And suddenly, people were not receiving responses back, and that their hotline calls uh, or their text messages were sort of going unanswered, um, and that they had, they did indeed have supplies in their possession um, and resources to give to people. But from the story that has been told is that it sounds like they got too tired and overwhelmed with the need to balance their personal life, their health, um, their families, their careers, and their well-being, especially um, in this moment during the pandemic, and sort of one by one um, had backed out of the day-to-day operation of the program um, until there was sort of nobody left to keep anybody else accountable. Um, And it just... So just to kind of sum up for everybody, like, you know, they were offering these services, but suddenly stopped, didn't really tell anybody and left a bunch of people hanging. Yep. That is a very fair assessment to put it. And still no one has heard from them? To the best of my knowledge, um, the message that I got from a volunteer in their program was that he had run into um, a person that founded the program on the street and he had been trying to connect with him for some time and he ran into this person outside of his home and he said that when he ran into this gentleman, he was able to obtain confirmation that the program was in fact shut down um, and that they were going to uh, transfer their supplies to this particular this particular person and just give him their leftovers so that he could theoretically um, bring them to our program so that we could distribute them in the other towns where we work. Yeah, well, that's unfortunate that you can't sometimes communicate to your participants that, you know, hey, we're not going to be offering this service anymore that you kind of rely on, uh, especially like there's so much misinformation and going on around about the virus and everything. And there's a lot of uncertainty and, and fear. We don't need to add to it, I guess. Yeah. Um, and so my my biggest concern is that this particular community is probably one of the toughest places in Iowa to live. If you're a person that uses drugs, um, I have no real way of measuring that. It just to aside from knowing um, that the relationships people have with law enforcement in the community are challenging. Um, people in the community have lost many, many, many people close to them to overdose. And the town, in a lot of ways, in our state, has taken on this face of the overdose crisis because of how many deaths have happened there. And then in many ways, it's a place where I've I've been really struck when I've gone there, especially before any services were really created, or even a while after theirs had been But with the desperation that people would approach you when they heard you might have access to syringes or you might have naloxone. I was really unfamiliar with people sort of rushing me to try to give me their girlfriend's cell phone number so that she could get uh, her mom in contact with me so that I could get uh, their whole neighborhood hooked up with Narcan. Um, And so just that intensity of insisting on a need for contact and kind of being chased around um, is really frantic. And so I think in that community, um, right, in that, in that particular experience was doing some research on the needs in that community for harm reduction services and really struck by 
um, the level of desire there um, and like deep hunger and need for free Narcan and easily accessible Narcan um, was was really um, devastated by the fact that um, a group of people could sort of continue or begin to build trust and then just take it all away. Wow, that's really unfortunate, kind of tragic. Yeah, I, I think it is. I think for people that work with with people who use drugs, people who do sex work, and all sorts of folks who are living outside of what some people might describe as like the mainstream, um, people have these really intense um, legacies, in some cases of trauma and of very violent acts um, that confirm to them a sense of marginalization in some ways. And when we're get, people get into harm reduction work, it's sort of with a desire to to not commit any of those types of harm. But it's sort of ironic then in the sense that the people who are creating the service that's meant to be the one place where people feel get their health care, where people feel they have um, trusting relationships and support and connection. Um, that that's really the place that ends up confirming to people you really don't have any value because we're just going to disappear and, and terminate our relationship with you without any kind of any care or plan or thought to what this might cause to happen in your life. Yeah. And, you know, the virus is like upending so much about our lives. And but the least you could do is like tell people that you're going to be ending the services. And I don't know the whole story. I have to talk to them, to, like, so I don't want to be too critical. But it's just unfortunate that this is happening uh, in the middle of the pandemic. Is there anything else you want to talk about related to this topic? Harm reduction services in the middle of viral outbreak? I will tell you that even though in Iowa, meth use is very common. And um, we often, I think, see ourselves as like, oh, the experts of harm reduction for stimulant use because meth use has been so deeply ingrained in for the fabric of especially rural community lives in Iowa for many decades at this point. And one thing that has been this abrupt change in the past few weeks is the massive change in the supply uh, that people are able to access of methamphetamine. And so there's sort of all this chatter happening all around us about the potential for change in the opioid supply as an opportunity to sort of unleash this wave of new overdose death that are connected to contamination with fentanyl and other synthetic opiates. Um, but with meth, there's not really um, a discussion that's analogous to that. And and maybe for, for some for good reason, because people are not dying in, in mass for this reason. But what we've seen happen here is a sudden change in the quality of the meth to the point where people are buying really large volumes and are able to do multiple grams of meth at a time um, and feel nothing happen to them. Um, so for, for point, a point of reference, somebody that has a pretty regular um, meth use practice, they might use like a tenth of a gram, um, a quarter of a gram over the course of a day, perhaps. Um, Maybe a lot would be over the course of a day. They could use a whole gram, but using multiple grams in one setting is really alarming and suggests, okay, what the substance you've identified is in fact not methamphetamine. Um, so lots of folks also talking about strange 
presentations of a mixture of symptoms that sound kind of like psychoses in some cases and very different from the typical meth-induced paranoia or state, but um, a lot of people reporting sort of unusual experiences with meth. And so it's, it's sort of this like massive change all over the state and the way in which these stories are all the same in the low far southeast corner to the central southwestern part of the state that borders Missouri to northeast Iowa up by Wisconsin. Um, It's over and over and over that you hear these things happening. Um, And so it's sort of created this alarm, I think, among people that work with drug users in the state, although there are not many of us to identify better resources for stimulant users. But it's very difficult to identify those resources when you don't actually have any idea what's going on and you have no idea what people are truly coming into contact with. Yeah, it's strange watching how the virus is changing drug markets. Has that changed any of the way that you conduct outreach towards people? You mean, do you mean like the conversations that we're having or more so the services that we're providing? I guess both. Yeah. So... With our outreach program, um, I will tell you that in the last, maybe the last like year or so, um, our outreach program has gotten to be um, a little trickier and it's just like, it's never been awesome here. And I, I volunteered at HIPS in DC for about five years before I moved back to Iowa. And street outreach and just general outreach in DC is, is great. I mean, it's a thing. You've got all these places, you see all the people, you give them the things, you run into people there, you run into people here. But Iowa, even in our cities, street outreach can be really hit or miss. Um, even if you go to spaces where um, people are congregating, like at a laundromat or a free meal or something. Um, and so most of the work that we do, rather than there being a spot and a time, a day of the week, and people show up, and that's where we are to do outreach. So much of what we do is either in our office or going to people's homes and sort of driving around the city, stopping at different motels, checking on group houses full of people. Um, And so that has remained fairly constant. In the outreach spots that we do have, where they're outside of businesses, next to restaurants, liquor stores, there have been so few people outside at many different points in time um, that it's made it almost impossible to find people and connect. Um, And I I know Daniel Raymond, I remember right when the pandemic was starting, I heard him um, talking in an interview with with you guys here on the show and he was talking about how this is really a time when we need to be going out and finding our clients you know if people are not where we're normally seeing them we need to be mobilizing our resources to going out to reach people but it's tricky when you run a program that prides itself on extreme anonymity and confidentiality um, so you don't even keep a client list you sort of just see who's there when they're there so when you can't find them you really just can't find them because um, a lot of folks are inside somewhere. Right. Oh, uh, this is a great conversation. I'm really, I've never actually been to Iowa, uh, you know, but it's like an important place and you guys are doing important work there. So it's good to hear. Well, I think this is a good place to stop. Uh, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. I No, I do appreciate you having me on the show yeah. and I will be excited. It's a, I like, I love the idea of, of talking to people over the country for these quick little interviews so i'll be excited to hear the episode well thanks so much i'll talk to you soon bye 
Thanks for listening to Narcotica. You can follow us on Twitter at Narcocast. We're also on other social medias like Facebook and YouTube. Narcotica is an independent production by Christopher Moraff, Zachary Siegel, and Troy Farah. Our theme music is by Glassboy. Additional music is by Mobius. And I'm your co-producer, Garrett. Be sure to follow us where you get your podcasts, and have a nice night, folks.